This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Genflown, and today we're going to talk about, drumroll please, Apple and Foxconn. But before going there, uh, we'll uh, reintroduce ourselves. We try to do that from time to time, so you'll know why we are interested and have any credibility to talk about this issue. Like y'all aren't stalking us already. Follow me on Twitter. Or you can just listen. (laughs) Because people can talk about anything nowadays and, you know, have a Twitter account. And I'll refrain from saying anything snide uh, and uh, move on. First, with Twitter, you don't even know if it's really the person, if it's not a verified account, and sometimes it is, and you're like, oh, it's really them. And hmm. Well, I'm at J underscore Janflown. My banner says, welcome to hell. I don't see that ever changing. Come follow me. I post a lot of cats. And I have a Twitter account, but uh, I don't really like to use it. Uh, we also have one at Speaker for the Living, mm-hmm. which is called uh, at Speaker the number four living, so speaker for living. And we also have a Facebook group, same thing, speaker for living. But to get into introductions, I am a undergrad graduate of uh, Messiah College in Pennsylvania, where I studied communications and a few years ago graduated from the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver with a master's in international human rights. While there, I was part of the Human Trafficking Center, which was the only two-year graduate-level anti-trafficking program. And I was the event coordinator one year and got to uh, coordinate wonderful Events for uh, Kevin Bales and Yvonne Zimmerman and uh, Maurice Middleberg, Free the Slaves, and some other people, which was great. Uh, And uh, another notable thing, which uh, relates to what we're talking about today, is I interned a couple summers ago at Verite, who focuses on uh, supply chains and uh, forced labor and how to detect labor issues and uh, they do lots of great research on things relating to forced labor and supply chains so yeah that was a really great experience and uh, undergirds some of what i do today so yeah so human trafficking and focusing on research has just become really important to me which is part of the reason that uh, i do the podcast with jj so my name is JJ Jamflown. I am a current PhD student at the University of Denver Joseph Corbell School of International Studies, where I am completing my PhD in international studies with a focus on human trafficking, East Asia, and then gender and minority representation within politics. So sort of an interesting little mix across the board. I received my undergraduate degree from St. Vincent College, which is in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Number one Benedictine seminary in the world. What, what? Or maybe just in the U.S. I don't know. It's one of the two. We're bearcats. Our mascot is the only animal besides a human that can laugh. I'm pretty sure so, I went to school with somebody else from Latrobe, but I don't remember who they are. 
I, yeah, somehow Seth and I both found each other as little PA people at Corbell because then I received my master's degree from the University of Denver Joseph Corbell School. And my master's degree was in international studies with a focus on human trafficking, uh, East Asia, and gender. So as you can see, once I get an idea in my head, I stick with it and I run with it. I am the media and marketing director for Swan Colorado, the social wellness advocacy network, which is a nonprofit here in Colorado uh, that works with people in erotic service provision and sex trafficking survivors. We try to bridge that position. And sort of why then so much I do on East Asia is my, my undergraduate degree was in creative writing and <laughs> Chinese history and Chinese language. So following the completion of my undergraduate degree, I moved to, lived, and worked in China for a number of years working for the Hebei Institute of Tsinghua University, uh, writing curriculum, teaching, and then uh, in my spare time volunteering with a migrants' rights organization. So that is sort of, and I've just continued to do sort of China-related stuff since. So that's kind of where my sort of, I think, expertise or sort of niche, niche expertise over overlaps here with this particular conversation. So I, I have worked with migrants who are factory workers. I have seen um, what it is like for them and kind of experienced the mass human migration that happens when factory workers and whatnot have to travel home. And it, it does change the way you look at everything that you buy from, from here on in once you've seen what it's like in the places where your your goods are actually made. It, it, it's rough. So it was very interesting when Seth and I sort of hooked up and started doing this podcast together, uh, the way that our core interest and competencies, I think, naturally just lended it to, to us talking about Foxconn and things related to that. I think it, it just, it, it's a natural fit. And I will say when it came to the events that Seth planned, he did a phenomenal job. I ate very well at all of those events. I still think of them fondly. It was delicious. It was real good. And that's who we are. Unlike Seth, I do tweet a lot. So follow me, hang out. It's a good time. And I have an iPhone. So that makes me totally credible to speak on this. I would like to say that I don't. I, I own an iPod from 2003 that continues to work. I quite like that. The rest of my stuff are Samsung or Chromebooks that my mommy bought me. Because if anything will make you poor, it's graduate school. But we all, I just, I want to make it clear, we all participate in these economies, whether you intend to or not. Whether it's the stuff you use at work, whether it's the fact that you actually just need clothing to cover your body. And for most of us, particularly just speaking in the U.S. context, you know, there's not a lot of people that can drop, you know, $50 for a pair of ethically sourced jeans at the minimum or that can find a computer. It's just not possible, actually, to find a computer, as far as I know, that has completely, completely human trafficking free components at every step along the line and we've got podcasts devoted to that and sort of the the rare earth minerals involved and the human trafficking of rare earth minerals involved so i just you know no like honestly like no judgment unless you yourself are working for one of these companies in this in the capacity in which you have the power to change this in which case you should really hire seth and i or one of our friends who have this degree from the human trafficking center and have us come in and manage your supply chain. 
So uh, today's podcast is based in part on a research paper I did for a class, and it has been updated since then. So it has a bunch of sources. It is going to start with talking about both Apple and Foxconn, and then we'll get into the issues that uh, relate to it in terms of uh, labor, uh, suicides you might have heard of. Yes. And we'll go topic by topic there. So we'll cover a lot, and uh, there's probably at least 20 sources, if not 50. I know. There's a there's a lot. If, if y'all want to dive deep, there's a lot to check up on. So Foxconn has been in the news this summer because President Trump and Paul Ryan and others broke ground, literally, in Mount Pleasant, Wisconsin in June 2018 for a factory that is going to cost like $10 billion and it's supposed to produce 13,000 jobs. Uh, they are now supposed to be producing smaller screens for tablets and smartphones, which was not the original purpose. But we'll, uh, we'll start with Apple. So primary supplier... And supplier is a broad term, which can mean manufacture, usually is some type of manufacturing, but it could be assembly, um, et cetera, whoever supplies to somebody else up the chain. And the primary supplier in China is Foxconn. So Apple actually has a highly regarded supply chain, and they have a detailed supply chain report, which includes problems found. They have made an effort and still do make an effort to improve labor conditions. So no matter how much cynicism you have about Apple, they do a lot, which is part of the irony with Apple is you could argue they do more than most companies in the world, but they also have more money than most companies in the world. Yeah. So compared to the supply chain and to briefly look at the supply chain the chinese laborers are paid relatively little within that supply chain and demand for apple products sometimes places a strain on that labor the way the supply chain tends to work is uh, design will take place in the united states or other western countries but in this case the united states and then there will be compo- well, there'll be minerals from places like Africa, and then you'll have a- Asian chip makers, and then everything will end up in a factory in Foxconn in China or multiple factories where they'll create parts and assemble the iPhones, and then they will be sold to the domestic market in the United States and other countries. And a lot of money is made on the retail end of the supply chain. So when you are looking at, okay, let's say we have, I was thinking 100, I should probably use more like 1,000, but when when you have a percentage... Yeah, it's massive amounts of units. You have a significant amount of the percentage that is in the design phase, a significant percentage that is based on the marketing and sales side of it so that a lot of the money is made not by the manufacturer 
not by the laborers who put it together. That that is not considered the highest value part of the supply chain. That in many ways it's easier to get people to do that, especially if you're in a country where there are less labor regulations and labor is comparatively cheaper. Although labor is on an upward trajectory and has been for a while in terms of the cost of labor in China. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that 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 labor is going away. What it means is that that labor then is transitioning out of China and into other East Asian countries like Laos, Cambodia, Bangladesh. Yep. And other companies. Pegatron, which I'll briefly mention. That just makes me think of a uh, transformer that's a Pegasus transformer. Oh my gosh, was there really a Pegasus transformer? No, not that I I know of. You're change, I was going to say, you're changing my life, Seth, if that's the case. But that's what I immediately think of. So Apple is one of the most profitable corporations in the world by both revenue and growth. Uh, Forbes had ranked them as the most valuable brand in 2015 with a value of $145 billion, which at the time was twice that of Microsoft and Google. In 2018, Forbes still says they're the most valuable brand, now at $926 billion, which is $780 billion more than it was three years ago. And uh, most valuable brand, number eight in sales, number one in profit, and ranked number eight on their global list of world's largest public companies. So those are all calculated different ways, but I I think if you just get the sense that they're worth a lot and they have a lot of profit, then you you get it. So uh, now Gartner had ranked Apple's supply chain based on their criteria, number one from 2008 to 2014 based on analysis and voting by Gartner people. Uh, Tim Cook, the current CEO, was instrumental in revamping their supply chain. He started in 1998, became their chief operations officer in 2005, and then CEO in 2011. Cook, like lots of companies, uh, wanted out of manufacturing. So for a perspective on this as a global trend, uh, Naomi Klein's uh, No Logo is uh, a really good book in this respect. And uh, if you don't like her leftist leanings, uh, just realize that there's still some really good uh, perspective there in terms of why don't we get out of manufacturing and the liability and the cost of manufacturing and why don't we just focus on branding? Because a lot of the money is in branding and let's spend more money on branding and we can just let people in other countries. Like it, cost was a factor, but cost wasn't the only factor in this trend. And so Cook helped Apple outsource their manufacturing, uh, closing factories and contracting it out. And so he very quickly reduced their number of suppliers as well. By And uh, in 2013, Apple only had 156 key suppliers, and they had ways of uh, locking up 
suppliers into contract, exclusive contracts, and prepaying and other ways to save money. And uh, they also have quite a bit of market power. Market power is what you can do when you're a large company, where you can dictate terms. Uh, Walmart has been accused of this numerous times, and it's just part of being a big company. So as you probably know, if you pay any attention to Apple, they release products on a pretty consistent cycle, uh, updating iPads or iPhones and uh and when that happens, there's there can be demand peaks, and that affects their suppliers. Now, one of the things that doesn't get enough discussion in in talking about uh, supply chain labor and outsourcing, like this isn't something I've ever heard Donald Trump talk about, mm-hmm. but that I also haven't heard most people talk about it, which yeah. is labor flexibility. That in China... There's a lot more people. There's a lot more people with certain skills and there, as well as the labor pool. And it's just easier to bring together a lot of people to hire and then fire than it is in the United States. People in the U.S. have more expectations about, oh, relocation packages and maybe not wanting to relate, relocate their family across the United States en masse that it's just easier to do in China and not just China but when you're t- when you're thinking about labor like the trend of temporary labor and contract labor that's been happening since the 70s worldwide it's easier for businesses if they don't have to have permanent employees and it's easier when you have a large labor pool and uh, some of the things that that are specific to China terms of to be able to bring in labor that doesn't have a lot of leverage and then let them go when you're done. And so that's something that China still has more labor flexibility than the United States. Now, uh, Apple also reduced their warehouses. They have one primary warehouse in California for their 250 stores. And uh, they have loyal customers, which makes it easier to make demand. And now they even ship some of their products directly to customers from China. But with each new iPhone, you know, there's the demand spikes. And then there's also the, the challenge that people are starting to get tired of buying iPhones. Because, like, oh, this one works perfectly well. And my, mine's a few generations back, and it works perfectly well for me. So Foxconn, their official name, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, is High Precision Industry Company Limited, based in Taiwan. So they've had a lot of employees. Uh, 2012, they had 1.3 million workers. 2013, 1.1 million. At that time, they were one of the top 10 employers in the world. Did you know that, JJ? I did not. So, yeah, they're pretty significant. Uh, Some of these are older numbers, just uh, because that's uh, what I put together at one point, but it still gives you the idea. So uh, the revenues in 2014 were $138 billion, with a net profit of $4.2 billion. 
In 2018, they were ranked 105th on Forbes' global largest public companies list with a value of $49.5 million and $154 billion in sales. Um, a few years ago, it was said that they produced 40% of the world's electronics. So Foxconn is somebody significant. They've also produced the Sony PlayStation 3, the Nintendo Wii, and the Amazon Kindle Fire. Well, this has fluctuated. Uh, Apple has accounted for as much as 40% of Foxconn's business. So while Foxconn is a major player, they are very uh, dependent on Apple and have a lot of interest in retaining them. Part of what's interesting to me with Foxconn, JJ, is like if any of you know anything about Chinese and intellectual property and how some companies don't view copyright the same way, uh-huh. the fact that Foxconn is able to lock down all this intellectual property and all of Apple's secrets so well, I find really amazing. I Well, I think it's too, they do a number of things to make that happen. And largely that is by doing like constant security inspections of the factories and and things of that nature. There was actually a really phenomenal, I was, I was very proud of this little, this guy, well, not little, who's an undergrad, but he, from NYU, he basically infiltrated, ethnically Chinese, he infiltrated uh, a Foxconn factory and reported to Business Insider that his typical working day was about 12.5 hours, and that it took him 30 minutes to clear security, two hours of work, a 10-minute break, two hours of work, a 15-minute lunch break, two hours of work, a 10-minute break, two hours of work, a 10-minute break, and then uh, 2.5 hours of mandatory overtime. And that oftentimes during those breaks, there were requirements, there were security requirements they're going through. So they were doing security checks as people and moving throughout the building. And so I think just sort of that reporting to shows, I think, how Foxconn has managed to do it, which I think is that they have money to spend and what they're spending it on is security, maybe not necessarily their workers. So, JJ, where is the main location for Foxconn so, in China? So it's in Longhua. It's, so that's the name of it. That's what it's called, the name of the factory. And it's located within Shenzhen, China, which is Shenzhen is right on the border of Hong Kong. You can take a bus. I've taken the bus. Uh, and it's sort of a huge industrial area. So it's where a lot of factories have hit. It's a major industrial sector of China. And it's a 850-square-acre campus of factories, dorms. There's grocery stores. There's banks. There's cafes. There's basketball courts. There's tons of stuff there. It, it's essentially a, a town, a factory town, sort of in that very old U.S. sense. Yeah, and uh, there have been... There's been as many as 400,000 workers. The number of workers fluctuate depending on what they're producing, but it's a lot of workers in a campus. Well, and so then you have, also when you think about a Foxconn worker, then you don't just have Foxconn workers and the actual factories themselves. You have people who clean the dormitories, people who are responsible for upkeep of all the buildings that are groundskeepers, people who are doing the laundry for the building. There's a lot, the security people... Well, and they have dorms on campus, and they've had over 70,000 workers just in their dorms. Mm-hmm. So just, it's, it's insane. It's a town. It's a town. It's like a Pittsburgh of people all working for Apple. 
Yeah, you'd have to think of like the old Hershey. Oh, yeah. straight up. Like a well, I think like an old mining town and that song like sell your soul to the company store because you have to you end up everything that you make you end up spending on the campus itself because you don't leave the campus. Yeah. I'd have to think more highly of Hershey, uh, you know, produced chocolate, but also the, there you go. I, I, I've been to Hershey PA. They have, they have a park there and they give away free chocolate at the end of a ride. It's hard to feel bad about that, but uh, I've been, I've been to that theme park. We took a school trip. <laughs> All right. So that was the segue. So <laughs> <laughs> I like that we announce it. I've never worn, I've never been on a segue. Have you? No, I would die. And I'm sure they're not ethically produced. So like, why, why, why taunt? Why taunt fate? All right. So at their peak, that factory had produced uh, 500,000 phones a day or up to 350 a minute. That's a lot. Yeah. Let's see. More recently, I've seen an estimate of uh, 700,000 in 2017. At any one time. Again, this is not consistent, which uh, gets into the temporary workers and other types of workers that we'll we'll get into. So uh, Apple's operating margins went from 18.7 in 2007 to 33% in 2012. Uh, operating margins for Foxconn during that time uh, went from 3.7% to 1.7%. So as Apple had more margins on its products, more profit, Foxconn had less. In uh, 2015, I found this really interesting. Uh, Apple had the most profitable quarter of any public company in history at $18 billion. And uh, they've also during that time, I've moved some production to Pegatron, which again, great transforming Pegasus name, I think. But uh, Foxconn is still the primary supplier, and Foxconn has also this year acquired Belkin, who produces uh, electronic equipment, network networking equipment, and so on. But uh, to go back to the, to the margins, like one of the challenges, and that one of my critiques with Apple is. They've done a lot, and I give them credit for what they're doing, and I know somebody who helps them, like one of our classmates works for them. We, we, there's a lot of good things I can say about Apple. But when you have the profits that they have, it's a lot harder to give Apple a pass. There's some companies that are smaller where you could say they have to choose between how much they want to try to regulate their supply chains and whether they want to exist. Like, will they be profitable enough if they put too much effort into compliance? Whether I feel okay with that dilemma, I can at least rationally understand it as a business dilemma where people have to make a choice. And in Apple's case, and this is the main point, they don't have to make that choice. Now, it's not that they don't have pressures from their stockholders. They do. Or from their board. I'm sure they do. But they're not hurting for money. And they clearly can put 
more money into compliance efforts. And so whether they need to put more pressure on Foxconn, who then says, well, we have all these increasing requirements and we don't have proportionally as much money to deal with them. So what do we do? Now, I don't know how much money Apple is funneling in to help them with compliance, but it's it's the part of this that, that is problematic, that how much when you when you have the resources you could arguably do more and so this is where i commend apple but i think they should do more because they actually can now while talking about labor it also gets interesting because foxconn has been working at automation building robots they built some robots few years ago that were slightly off like by a very small amount in the in their uh, design and so they couldn't use them but now it's what they want you to think Seth yeah probably sell them to home users or something they're coming just like iRobot (sighs) so they hope to achieve 30% automation by 2020 uh, began their efforts in 2015, and uh, they've already deployed over 40,000 of their Foxbots. They call them Foxbots. Which, like, are you trying for people to think that you're sort of an evil corporation? Name your robots Foxbots. That's a good, that's a Captain Planet villain. I'm just saying. Personal opinion. Yeah, as a really weird aside, when I when I hear about our, our government considering space force, I think of Space Ghost, which is going way back in Hanna Barbara. Coast to cartoons. coast. Even before that. So um, it's worth noting when we talk about robots, like forty thousand robots, that that's not a one to one relationship. It doesn't mean that it's going to eliminate forty thousand jobs. Yeah. Because the way that they do tasks, it's not a one. Yeah, it's not a one to one. But even China is working on automating, and so that has effect on their labor market as well as our labor market. And some of these jobs are just not coming back to anyone, including China. Now uh, to show some more stats about them, uh, profit for Foxconn has fallen for two straight quarters. But uh, Apple is still increasing even as uh, even as they only sold 1% more iPhones in uh, the quarter that ended in June compared to a year earlier. That's still more. And they've also raised their prices. So they only sold 1% more iPhones but their revenue went up 20% over the same period because their price rose 20%. Isn't that great for Apple? Great, yeah. So again, I have some criticism over Apple on this, but I also know that there are people who really do care about the issue and, and who are working hard to improve their supply chain and deal with labor issues. 
So before getting into the problems, you have any other thoughts, JJ? No, I mean, I think you've done a really good job of sort of breaking down how the factories function, at least, or just sort of like how Apple functions within this factory system. So the first problem we're going to get into, and this is because this one has a historical longevity, is excessive overtime. This one goes back to 2006, after some British newspapers wrote about it, and uh, and Foxconn was one of the facilities that had excessive overtime, and uh, they at, Apple had an audit done, and uh, they paid Verite, and uh, I was glad when I found out this was public knowledge because not everything that I learned at Verite I can share. So, you know, they worked with Verite, who helped them do an audit and found a th more than a third of their employees work more than 60 hours per week. And that exceeded Apple's code of conduct. And so Apple admitted that about 20% of the time, employees work more than six days straight without a day off. And so... Uh, so working with uh, Verite, they went and tried to improve their process. But it didn't end there. Which isn't to say that some things weren't improved or addressed, but it didn't end. So they, once again, uh, there were other things that happened, which we'll get into, but then in 2012, they had an assessment by the Fair Labor Association in 2012 at three different factories, including Shenzhen. And uh, once again, overtime was exceeded at all three factories. And if I could just say, in a, in a number of reports done of people who either went undercover or interviewed current or former workers at these factories, not just the Apple factory, but a variety of factories, this overtime isn't actually optional overtime because the, the unspoken rule in a lot of these places is that if you do turn down overtime or if you attempt to leave or if you don't agree to the overtime that's necessary for the factory to meet the goal that they've stated is required for the factory to exist that day, that you, you will be fired and that another person will take your place. And, and get your job, that there are people who are who are waiting for these factory jobs. There is a waiting list of applicants, and if you are not willing to work that overtime, there is somebody who is willing to work that overtime for you. There's also sort of the sense, you know, you're working with the same people every day for 12, 16-hour shifts, that if you say no to overtime and, and you quit, are you then leaving your your teammates, these people that you you're also living with, you're living with, you're working with, are you then leaving those people to to suffer and have to do more work because you've said no? So it's a very complicated, I think that maybe we have this idea in, in America of like, well, you can turn down overtime, but everyone's had that job where they're like, well, you can come in on Saturday. You don't have to, but everyone's known that if you didn't go in, that there would be some form of, of repercussion happening there you would you would it wouldn't work for you in some way and further if you're living on campus you're 
how do you say it? You're, you're on campus. You're, you're within earshot. You're easier to control. Yeah, it's, well, where, where are you going to go that isn't controlled or that isn't part of the company? And we'll soon give one answer to that. So the Fair Labor Association audit cost over $250,000 for that audit, which was the largest industry audit to date at the time in 2012. So again, uh, the Fair Labor Association limit for hours, it's 60 hours a week or 80 hours a month. The China legal limit in order to be overtime, I believe, is uh, 49 hours a week and 36 hours a month. So uh, Apple has produced their own supplier responsibility report since 2008. I'm linking to the latest one, and uh, excessive overtime is one of the metrics that they monitor. Now, doing audits has multiple challenges, and uh, not all auditors do it the same way. Uh, Not all, like for instance, where do they interview the worker? Well, it's better to interview them off-site, because if they're on-site, they might know that the employer is watching or listening or somebody else is listening. You know, how the questions are asked, uh, like, does the person giving the audit really want to uncover problems? The fact that if you know when the audit's going to happen, you can try to control the narrative. That there's just multiple factors that go into how one does audits. And so having an accurate assessment and then being able to deliver it in a way where the company actually wants to address the issues, like this isn't specific to Foxconn in, in talking about it that way, but it it's challenging to do an audit, the main point. So uh, the Fair Labor Association did some follow-up audits and showed some improvements with overtime compliance. And uh, actually one of their critiques for the specific audit was that the interviews were on-site rather than off-site. So uh, Apple claims that they have a 92% compliance with the 60-hour maximum work week. So that says they recognize that they have had 8% non-compliance. So they're not portraying a perfect supply chain in their reports. It's a work in progress. So I'll give them some credit for that. Uh, Nowadays, Apple do their own audits. So they uh, have an Apple auditor, and they're supported by a local third-party auditor. I would argue for a number of reasons. Uh, Having your own auditors seem a little less uh, non-neutral than having a third-party auditor, but that also has increased compliance cost. So if there's a violation, suppliers are required to submit a corrective action plan within two weeks. Their auditors check in at 30, 60, and 90-day intervals, which then culminates with a third-party verification at 120 days. That's what I was able to find when I eventually found that bit of information, which wasn't all that easy for me to find. It's like, what is the process? And Apple, if that's changed, feel free to let me know. (laughs) And as of 2015, it still occurs, and 
as of August 2016, there's still some issues, including at uh, Pegatron, which also had excessive overtime. So yeah, that just uh, keeps coming up. But one of the ways when you feel trapped and you're on campus and you feel watched that a person may decide to uh, deal with the situation is to jump from a building. So before getting into the incidents, um, why might somebody choose jumping and suicide at a place like Foxconn, JJ? Okay, so this is this is going to be a moment, right? So here's here's the deal. So for a lot of migrant workers working at a lot of people working in these factories, they're not legally in the place where they're working. So everybody in China who is a Chinese citizen needs a hukul. It's a residency card, and it, on it it says the city named on the card, and that's where they were born, and that's where they are allowed to live. Or the place where they are allowed to move to. So say that you were born in Beijing, but you're moving to Shenzhen, your card would reflect that. It has a chip in it. It says your name and your place of birth. It's what you need. You need it to get an apartment. You need to get it to register legally for a job. You need to send your children to school. You need to use it when you go to the hospital. So people who have migrated to cities to get jobs or people who migrate to factory towns to get jobs and don't have those people, they're working illegally. And that means that they don't have really access to public housing, healthcare, school. They don't have access to anything in social settings. And what that leads to is then is that a lot of migrant workers actively are second class citizens in the towns where they live and work. And any time, and that also means that maybe they can't bring their spouse with them and they probably can't bring their children with them because the children can't apply for school. And there's a fantastic documentary called Last Train Home that I highly recommend. Everybody watch it. Now, starting around 2016, there was huku reform that was happening because of the plight of like left behind children, these, these mass amounts of children who were left with a rapidly aging elderly population in rural areas while their parents went and worked in factories. That was kind of like getting widespread like international media representation. I think in part because of last train home, PBS showed it again, highly recommend watching it. You also see what the inside of these factories looks like by watching it, which is great. So the hukus have happened and so that now means that like families are traveling together but like pre-2016 that wasn't happening and this has still happened on a city by city basis so right away you have people who are isolated right they're isolated from their families they can't get access to them they're also isolated from the wider community they only can exist on the campus because they're working in that area illegally Okay, so the CCR, CSR, which does surveys of Chinese factories and their workers, found in 2017, 72% of their workers still, of Chinese workers in factories still don't live with their children. So that's very difficult. You've got a lot of pressure. This also means that people have a minimum amount of money they need to make on a, on a daily or weekly basis because they're sending money home to take care of their children. They might be sending money home to a spouse who's in another city, and they're also sending money home for elderly parents. And because of the one-child policy, these might be one individual who's trying to fund six other individuals 
to, to make money. Then you add on the additional stress of time. So people who are putting in 66 hour work weeks may also be forced to sign false time cards. As China Labor Watch reported, you have 12 hours on an assembly line while on the assembly line and during breaks, no talking, no standing up, no drinking water, no cell phones. Like you're not allowed to move or, or to leave. You can't ask for a break. The food that you're eating is bad. Uh, Last Train Home actually has a beautiful image of what that food looks like. It's terrible. And it's anywhere from 5 to 10 renminbi, which actually would probably get you like a decent snack at a 7-Eleven type place, but we'll pay for a meal on the factory hall. But if you're paying, say, 4 to $5 a meal a day and you're only making like 500 a week, that actually is a fair portion of your salary. There's no grocery store for you to go to. You're, you're forced to eat what the company is giving to you. You're still working. If you want internet access for your break, you have to pay for it. You go then back at home at night to your dorm. There's hundreds of people sharing a dozen showers. Everyone is in these really thin tin, uh, twin beds. Mass amounts of people. It's gender specific shoved in a room. You're not allowed to change rooms without permission. You're not allowed to play music. You're not allowed members of the opposite sex. You're not allowed to drink. You're not allowed to smoke. You're not allowed to sit outside. It's really, really stressful. And you're never alone. And you always feel watched. And yet at the same time, you're always alone. Because you can't talk to anyone. You can't participate with anyone. You're so far away from home, you can't call home. You're often working seven days a week. You're working right up until national holidays, where then you're competing with thousands upon thousands of other people for the world's biggest mass migration to get to your hometown. And so for a lot of people, the only way out is suicide. And so for a lot of people will then choose their method of suicide being jumping because they are never completely alone. So other methods of suicide that you might engage in that are very private are just simply not possible when you're sharing a bedroom with a hundred other people, when, when all of the bathrooms are open air and there's a hundred other people, when you're always surrounded by people. And so really jumping becomes one of the few opportunities that you have. It also is seen in many, by many people as a way of announcing to the factory that they have been harmed. They have been treated cruelly by this factory and that they want attention to it. And I am particular, I'm going to cite an article that was done by CNN on mental health of Chinese migrants that talks about how more than half, actually 58.5% of Chinese migrants surveyed had severe depression, 17% had anxiety, and almost 5% had actually like considered the idea of suicide to the point of planning. And so that this is a very real thing affecting this population, more than half of whom are under 30. And so what, what do people do then in this situation? You can't leave. You can't go home. You have no privacy. You have, I think, sort of a very bleak outlook of it. This is never going to get better. And then you have sort of just public opinions about suicide, where in China, more, more women than men do die of suicide. More women than men are actually factory workers, for, for the most part. 
And while China does have a lower suicide rate than places like Korea and, and Japan, there have been sort of people worried that the government statistics might be flawed. However, I will say that like in overall, they have more young adult suicides in factory towns than they have anything else. And so China accounts for more than 30% of the world's suicides. So there's a lot, there's a lot that happens there normally tied to sort of feeling particularly from young women feeling that they have been abandoned, feeling that they will never make enough money, feeling that while working in, in a factory town, they will never be able, like this is going to be their, their life for, for a long time. Yes. And one of them who jumped when she was 17 was TNU and she survived the jump and was interviewed by Students and Scholars Against Corporate Misbehavior, or SACM. Mm -hmm. And she described an environment where it was difficult to make friends due to shifting schedules, the 12-hour days, uh, language, uh, the tasks were timed, and her movements were scrutinized, and and then when you met, met the quota, it would be an increased quota. And oh, and I'll, I'll hop in really quickly, mm -hmm. too. Just two other little things. One, really quickly on language. I think everybody presumes that everyone in China speaks Mandarin. That's not the case. A lot of people speak a regional dialect that can be very, very different. So that's an issue. Mm -hmm. And then also, too, there is sort of this idea of workers will sometimes be paid to report on other workers within the factory for behaving in a way considered in a, inappropriate to the factory or like not maximizing money. For the factory. So I think there is kind of this fear between workers that unless you know someone really well, maybe don't share sort of your personal struggles. And then also if you've say referred a worker to the factory who gets hired and they then behave inappropriately, you could then get in trouble and be fired for recommending that worker who then did poorly or, you know, spoke out against exploitation or trafficking or and then this is sort of the the biggie is that you see a lot of sort of trafficking or sort of criminal activity happening within these factories where, you know, someone might be being sex trafficked and, and be afraid that they'll lose their job if they speak out and sort of mass abuses and in that way. So just really quick. And also too, a lot of these factories will have a scheme where maybe you work for a month, uh, anywhere from a month to three months and you're not paid and they promise you that pay at the end of the year. And if you quit before the end of the year, then you are not paid all of your back pay. And so that is a further thing that will keep people here. So just real, real quick notes on that, like sort of that adds to the isolation. And so for TNU, you had the loneliness and the stress. And then when an administrative error led to her not being paid her first month wages and she couldn't find somebody to help her address it, that's when she jumped out the window. Uh -huh. And so it's not necessarily one thing as you know, if any of you have had lots of stress in your life, you know how it can accumulate. You know, Based on what I mentioned about TNU and what JJ said, you can come up with your own reasons for why she might have jumped, but it's, you know, a lot of things together, you know, where they're ultimately 
not getting money and uh, not feeling like there was anything she could do about it. So this became national news in the spring of 2010 when nine Foxconn employees jumped to their deaths. So it got into the media, and when things get in the media, then companies like Apple jump to try to do something about it. Shows you the importance of media coverage, and um, it would be nice if everything was detected without media coverage, but there you go. Over 18 employees jumped between 2010 and 2012. CEO Terry Gao later said of the suicides, quote, It wasn't because the workers were tired. Some of it was because of the, the work is monotonous, but 90% of it had to do with personal relationships or because of family disputes. End quote. Which is so, and there's another documentary called Santa's Helpers that's about factory workers making toys in Shenzhen. And one of the one of the things that always got me there is that there's a scene where they're filming and one of the factory workers passes out. It just, it so happens that she, she passes out while, while being filmed. And the, one of the, the factory managers is there and he's like, Oh, well, you know, she just, she didn't want to spend money on breakfast. And so that's why she passed out, you know, nothing to say of how many hours she's been working or how expensive breakfast is, or maybe that breakfast wasn't edible that morning. You know, just entirely puts it on her that like, oh, these people who work for me are so greedy, they won't even pay for breakfast, but she'll be fine, she'll be fine. And the the documentary and filmmaker tries to talk to her and she like runs away because she's so afraid of being filmed. And it's just that's a moment in the documentary where you realize just sort of how bleak things are with this woman who has just fainted and, and it's a hard faint, like she hits the pavement pretty hard. You know, just her coworkers get her up and like hustle her off screen as, as quickly as possible so that she doesn't get in trouble. And the uh, late Apple CEO, Steve Jobs, also had something to say when he was asked about it. Quote, we are on top of this. Foxconn is not a sweatshop. It's a factory. But my gosh, they have restaurants and movie theaters. But it's a factory. But they've had some suicides and attempted suicides. And they have 400,000 people there. The rate is under what the U.S. rate is, but it's still troubling. All right, Steve Jobs. Hey, movie theater no one can go to because they work 16-hour days is not a movie theater. That counts. I mean, you, yeah, it's not a sweatshop in the traditional way that people talk about sweatshops. It's more of a... Uh, well-orchestrated machine where people are part of that machinery mm -hmm. and very clean. Foxconn initially responded to the suicides, aside from that lovely Terry Guau quote, by re requiring new hires to sign an anti-suicides pledge <laughs> that said the company would not be blamed if they chose to commit suicide. But they, after some criticism, they retracted it and instead put up suicide nets in every factory and dormitory. There's photos of that online that you can easily find. Uh, also, they uh, started offering counseling services to try to mitigate suicides, including an emergency care hotline. I mean, that's good to have, have that. It appears to have helped lower suicide attempts. 
Although there have been reports that the emergency care hotline is sometimes inaccessible, unhelpful, or not trusted. It's also, though, unclear what um, how, how much uh, mitigation Foxconn has done to keep some of these suicides from coming to light or to not connect them to the, their factories. But there, there have still been suicides. Uh, there were three Foxconn worker suicides in uh, May 2013, although only one was on the property. And then there was the, in 2014, the prominent suicide of... Uh, Zulwitze. And in 2014, there were reports of five other suicides and an attempted suicide and another case of sudden death. As of 2017, a U.S.-based Chinese workers' rights organization has claimed another person died after jumping from a building. Name is Li Ming. So that still happens, it, but it looks like the numbers have gone down. But we don't know if part of that is because Foxconn is controlling the narrative. Next, something that uh, Americans perceive China to be famous for, which is low wages. <laughs> Although it's relative. It's relative compared to China because Foxconn factories are not bad for China. For factories. For factories. Not for regular work, but for factory work, unskilled factory work. They're, they're pretty decent. And, and com when comparing any country... Like, to look at uh, purchasing power parity, in other words, buying power, mm -hmm. like, just because somebody is making substantially less compared to here, it's not good to just compare it based on the wage. You base it on what they can buy compared to here. You know, how much does yeah. it cost for apartments? How much does it cost for groceries and, and, and all the other things? And... You know, it costs more to live in the United States generally. Although some cities are more expensive to live in in China compared to other places in China, right, JJ? Oh, very much so. And then, but I will say that the, the housing market has been kind of in a, there's been a housing market bubble and many people have questioned whether or not that's going to break in China. And so that remains very I'd say that housing in any sort of city center is going to be expensive, and then the larger city centers even more so. So the entry wage level in 2009 was 135 a month, or 84 cents an hour. In 2010, it was raised to 180 a month, which is a lot more than 135 a month. Uh, they could get overtime, which would technically be at a higher rate. And if they were retained for six months, they could also get a higher rate by according to the rules. Uh, at that time, there's a report I'm going to uh, link to, which determined that Chinese labor accounted for 1.8% of the value of iPhones and 2% of iPads. So that is... Not saying that Foxconn's value was that low, but it's saying the laborers is that low. Uh, partly due to complaints about wages and partially to address the suicide criticism, they raised their wages in Shenzhen by 30% in 2012. And they raised them twice that year 
so that the average starting salary in 2012 was 285 a month. So one of the things that's really notable is uh, Foxconn pays a little bit above the minimum wage for Shenzhen, which in turn pays more than rural migrants can make in the provinces, which hence is why people move from the rural provinces to the cities. Now, while I've mentioned the minimum wage for the city, it's also been noted that as the city raises the minimum wage, Foxconn raises the minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And so it's not something that they're doing purely from the good of their hearts because they just want to raise the wage. It's that they're also following the trend of what the city's doing and keeping pace with it, which is something, but it's not just because they want to raise wages. But Foxconn has raised wages. The city has raised wages. Overall, as we've said, wages have gone up in China, but that's as like they raise the wages because the cost of living is also going up. Yes. And in an effort to keep workers, there were a number of worker walkouts and things of that nature. So in an effort to make that happen. Anything else on wages? I think the big thing to remember too about these wages is that because you don't have a whole, for, for most of these people, if they're working illegally, the contract that they're signing is not a legal contract. And so if they're shorted on wages, if they're shorted on overtime, they have very few areas to try and fight and get that money back. When you also then combine that with sort of this fear of oftentimes wages are held a month back or so, that's an added stressor. And then you add on that, like, you've got to pay for Wi-Fi, you've got to pay for phone calls. You can also have your pay docked via demerits for things that are considered inappropriate behavior. So sitting down. Well, at the job, bringing in water. So next point of discussion, illegal student labor. In 2012, Foxconn acknowledged using student interns on manufacturing lines. These were people who were told by their teachers that in order to fulfill their internship requirements, they had to work at Foxconn, even though it wasn't part of their field. Like it wasn't relevant to what they were doing. Yeah. And that that was one way that certain uh, factories were able to supplement their labor force. Again, in 2017, it happened again. Six high school students told the Financial Times they routinely work 11-hour days assembling the iPhone 10 at a factory in uh Shenzhou, China, which constitutes illegal overtime. They said they were part of a group of 3,000 students and that they had required work experience in order to graduate. Uh. So it's one of these weird things where, oh yes, this is a problem, we'll address it, and then eventually it happens again. And again, and again, and I'm sure will continue to happen in other countries because this is the problem when you fight for, for exceptionally cheap labor. Yeah, and when when profits for Foxconn go down as profits for Apple go up, like I don't see, I'm not looking at their books, so mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know whether there's, you know, grafting corruption or mismanagement on Foxconn's side or whether Apple's just simply not giving them enough money. But that's the question that's raised. And if that's the case, then if the employer is being squeezed, it's hard to excuse the parent company. Yeah. 
So there, and I don't think we should. Yeah. yeah. Well, and relating to other companies, like if you can't survive without cheap labor that you don't know is not mistreating the employees, then is your business a viable business? I would question whether it is. So sometimes there are riots or strikes. Mm-hmm. And so that has happened multiple times. And actually, there are uh, strike maps in China, uh, which I will try to link to that site. But yeah, there, there's quite a few labor strikes in China. Um, are you also aware of that, JJ? Yes. I'm not and surprised. They're, they're, no, but just it's – and you can see them on Weibo and sort of repeats of them. And that's – like it's wonderful that people have walkout and strikes and things of that nature. But the fact is is that there are just so many factories that are so connected that without like mass worker mobilization, it's not nearly as, as effective. So uh, to give a few examples, in March 2002, workers who built iPhones rioted at a Foxconn factory in the northern town of – uh, it almost looks like Taiwan, but I, <laughs> I'm I'm gonna leave that. Go for it. Um, because I don't have to appease China. There you go. Yeah. So they claim that uh, heavy-handed treatment at the hands of security, long hours, and strict personnel and work regulations was imposed on them by management. It was followed in September 2012 by a riot of over 2,000 workers. 5,000 riot police were sent in. 40 workers were injured and 100 arrested. There's also been a number of wildcat strikes, uh, not, which is likely to be more common because it's hard to have union strikes when the u- unions are official things that are controlled and may or may not have um, events like join the union and then we won't even have meetings and things like that. Do you have any more uh, info on the unions? Well, the, it's just there? that the unions can oftentimes too, like they'll be the people selected to be able to be on the unions will be like established by the factory. So sometimes it can just be present to get info on angry workers. So a lot of people are very, I would say reluctant to, to join these groups or just also think about it. You know, if you're working a 20 hour day, do you really want to spend your remaining time doing anything other than sleeping? Mm-hmm. So there was uh, a large strike of three to 4,000 workers at a Foxconn factory in Shenzhou in 2012. And so, so strikes are going to be a lot more common than riots, and there's reasons for that. For one, strikes are less dangerous. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so in 2014, there were some Foxconn workers that went on strike asking for more overtime, and it was also partially due to increased automation. So hey, something Chinese and American workers can get behind. Yep. Effective automation. But it's also too sort of a concern of them, well, what will this workforce move to when the factories leave? Mm-hmm. And that's a difficult question I think China is struggling with as well as people increasingly leave rural areas and farming. Yeah, and it it, it relates to the entire fabric of the, the urban-rural divide. Like, China also has an urban-rural divide and perceptions of people that are in rural areas versus cities and yep. how many people do we 
want from rural areas coming into our cities. Um, my sense is not many. Um, so it's, you know, the concerns that people think about in the U.S., they think about in China. Like there's, there's a, there are divides based on where people live. But, you know, we mentioned the unions. Uh, China tends, doesn't like unions. I, it seems like the U.S. doesn't either, but. Uh, no, they, very few places actually, as it turns out, like things that take money away from them. But uh, there's a, the state-controlled All-China Federation of Trade Unions is, uh, you know, like any state-run thing is not something that people really love to join because they're going to control it. And they and so they also don't go out of their way to educate about unions. So it's like, oh, yes, we have a union, but we're not going to make sure everyone understands what it's about and and uh, why you should join. Sometimes the environment is hazardous. So in 2011, there were explosions at two iPad factories where iPads were being polished. 77 were injured and four killed due to aluminum dust combusting. Apple had reportedly been alerted that there were issues inside that plant. And this happens in places not just Apple. A lot of um, blue jean related factories uh, also because a lot of times the dyeing used in clothing mm -hmm. is is toxic and so actually there is I've, I've linked everyone to a story there's one um in particular the deals that pay was slightly higher the more you worked with toxic chemicals so just sort of the risk you had to take with it so there doesn't appear to be any explosions or major health issues at foxconn since 2011 and apple also tries to keep their hazards to a minimum. In fairness, this is something that factories and Apple have a vested interest in not having those type of mm -hmm. issues. They don't want their factories blowing up. But uh, other factories and other places and uh, was that one video we watched where the uh, building collapsed? Was that in China or somewhere else? That was in China, and that's in Santa's Santa's okay. Little Helpers. Yeah, there have been there have been massive factory collapses in places like Bangladesh, and in clothing factories in particular. Uh, but the the big thing um, is that a lot of times too, because it's subcontractor through subcontractor through subcontractor. That's quite hard to track it out and a lot of times people will end up over you know shoved on one building that was poorly made poorly maintained and also too just sort of standard major OSHA not compliance with you know locking workers in a factory so that's an overview of the issues with uh, which for which we're going to have a plethora of links that you can uh, go ahead and look at I wanted to present this as not just one-sided and uh, to show some of the complexity because there are complexities and there are good things being done. And I don't think it's helpful to just accuse every corporation of greenwashing, you know, which is to placate people by doing environmental things or work or worker things and still, but these companies are trying to make a profit, trying to profit as much as possible. They have pressures to do that. Uh, 
But uh, there was a book in uh, one of John Perkins' books, and because he's the one who wrote uh, Confessions of an Ec- Economic Hitman, so you can decide how much of a conspiracy theorist and leftist he is. But there was something where he talked to one corporation that they had been pressuring. He met an exec in an informal environment. I think it was around a hot tub. And the exec who he was like scared, like, oh my gosh, this is going to be really awkward. The exec thanked him for putting pressure on his company to help them do some of the things that some of them wanted to do. And, you know, if that's a true story and it, I can believe it is like, there are people who want to do good things in companies. I, I totally believe that. And some amount of media pressure and some amount of NGO pressure is helpful toward that end. Yeah. Because when you have people who are trying to make as much profit as possible and where there's a lot of pressure from a lot of people to do that, to have some counter pressure to motivate them to care about their reputation and, uh, increase pressure to care about people and to go the extra mile to say, yes, you need to care about your supplier. Like you can't just not care, <laughs> which was how some suppliers started to do it initially as well. That that's our supplier. Yeah. That's not our responsibility. No Nike. It, you can't just absolve your, get rid of your factories and then absolve yourself of all responsibility. And so you know, keep putting pressure on Apple, but they don't have to be the great big demon either. There are good things happening and there are people who really want to help workers and care and who care about worker rights at these companies. And so if, if we're going to put pressure on these companies, let's do it with that in mind. That's what I think anyway. Yeah. I'm down. I support it. Also, this stuff can be complex. Yeah, and I will and I will point out that like in some ways like a bigger factory sort of are are better in, in many ways than than the smaller ones. Uh, there are reports in like the smaller ones that are sort of like the independently owned subcontractor, subcontractor, subcontractor of like people being forced to take their children to work with them and like having to chain the kids up in like the courtyard and then people working literally until they pass out and then having to keep working. You know, though, at, at least there is some oversight at these larger factories. Like, I will give them that, but it's a small gimme, not a big one. All right. Well, I hope that was helpful, and uh, that'll be it until the next podcast. All right, everybody. Bye. Bye, everyone. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.